Well, good morning. Uh, if you're a guest, I'm, I'm John Cheryl, uh, another of the pastors here at the church, and it's great to be worshiping with you on this day. We're uh, continuing a sermon series. We started after the first of the year here in uh, the letter of Ephesians, and we're working our way through the entire uh, letter. So we've worked our way through chapter one already the last couple Sundays, and we found that the first half of chapter one kind of Uh, uh, dealt with all of the ways God has blessed us. The Apostle Paul couldn't contain himself. He just in one huge run-on sentence discussed all the ways God has blessed us in the past, uh, in the present, and promises to bless us in the future. And then last week, the second half of chapter one, the Apostle Paul turned from rehearsing all of those blessings to praying for the church, the church back then, and I believe the church right now, us, that we might grasp the fullness of those blessings and live in them, in them right now. So today we move on to chapter two, just the first 10 verses. Uh, so let's listen to that scripture now. The word of the Lord from Ephesians chapter two. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sheila. So Crystal and I are remodeling our living room right now. And uh, by, by remodeling, I mean like facelift stuff, not a big, massive thing. You know, like paint the mantle that was an old wood color, paint it white and lighter colors on the walls. Uh, because you have to do something in Michigan in the winter, right? Not every day is like today, and the, the gray starts to sink in. So, you know, maybe a couple new lamps. Just make the make the room lighter, so it's better for hanging out. It feels better, better for reading, all that all that kind of stuff. So, um, we've begun now. But before we started, I had the thought that we should take some before and after pictures, uh, just. Uh, to remember how dark the room was before <laughs> and then afterwards hopefully to celebrate how light it, it had become. Uh, and, then, and that got me to thinking about before and after pictures in general because it's quite a thing, isn't it? We like, we like the contrast of those things. We take the before pictures and the after pictures so that we can look at what happened and the, the, the dialogue inside is, wow, that's crazy. Look how bad it was. We lived like that for how long? (laughs) These changes were pretty easy. Like, why didn't we do this a long time ago? Um, Before and after, right? And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing in this this passage. 
uh, he, chapter one, again, all the blessings, past, present, and future God has given us, and he prays that we'll, we'll internalize that, not just hold this as a religious idea out there, but we'll understand and experience the goodness of God in our, in our hearts. And right after that whole bit in chapter one, he turns the corner and he throws down this before and after picture thing. Uh, because before Jesus, you weren't, we weren't just missing a bit of self-actualization. You know, before Jesus, uh, we weren't just a little light on the religious stuff. Before Jesus, we weren't just needing to go back to church because we should. Before Jesus, we were dead. It wasn't just like we needed to fill up the, the church silo in our life. We were dead. If you're newer to the Bible, this is the very clear teaching of Scripture that without Jesus, we're not just in need of a little something. We're, we're deaf, we're blind, and we're dead spiritually, wholly unable to help ourselves. And, and, it, and it kind of grates against what we see because we look around the world every, every day and we see people very much alive. You know, but the teaching of the Bible is that no matter how physically fit or mentally alert we might appear in the comings and goings of everyday life, life without God is a living death. It really is. The the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, the, the very first question, what is the chief end of human beings? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this is, um, th- this is something that I know very well personally because I didn't come to Christ until I was an adult. I was in college. So I remember very distinctly life as a, as a young adult when I was living completely unaware of God. Uh, God was a religious idea in, in other people's lives, not a reality in my own. And, and I remember very distinctly what it kind of felt like, what my life was like to be spiritually blind, deaf, and dead. Uh, I was as unresponsive to God as a corpse, literally. And I bear witness to you, that is no life at all. That is death. Even though I love to ski, I love to play basketball, I was very much alive, but I wasn't. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't have time to surf through all the biblical content on this because this is basically what the Bible is about. It's kind of the whole thing. I mean, Jesus said it very clearly. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Real life that lasts is knowing God. That is eternal life. And, and, and life is fellowship with God, having an actual relationship. And on the flip side, the Bible is really clear. Spiritual death is separation from God and thus separation from real life that we create by all of our wrongdoings and failures. Here's the scripture. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And, and this is the basic tragedy of human existence that Jesus came to fix. The tragedy is this, that, that people who were created by God and for God are trying to live without God. 
And, and, and we see it all around. This is the incredible clamoring in life to kind of fill ourselves up or cure the restlessness within or however we want to look at it. We see it happening every day. You feel it happening in you even. There's this temptation that we need to do something to fix ourselves. Right? And this is the, the greatest tragedy. Before God, we were dead. And, and that's not the end of the bad news, says Paul in, in the first part of this, this passage. Before God, we were dead. Not only that, before God, we were also enslaved and condemned. Here's what he says. We followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. We were enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. This trifecta of influence appears regularly in the scripture. And before God, these three influences were the only ones that had voice into our internal dialogue and driving our motivations and, and impacting our behavior. Uh, just, just last week, Crystal and I kicked off a, a Sunday school class for this semester uh, called Hearing God. And we're, we're trying to talk about that, like the, the kind of the paradox that we experience that sometimes other people say to us, well, I heard God say this, and we might be thinking, well, gosh, I wish I heard God. You know, I, wh- how, why does it that other people can seem to hear God, but I don't, and just trying to get very real about how Christians understand what it means to hear from God and the whole variety of ways God can communicate with us. And one of the things we're going to be hitting in that class at some point in a future week is the inner dialogue. Have you thought about this? You know the inner dialogue. We all have it. It probably is our greatest reality because it's going on all the time. It's going on in you right now. It's there all the time. How does stuff get in there? You ever thought about that? I mean, what populates that inner dialogue? Where does that stuff come from? Uh, the Bible has an answer. Four sources, the world, the flesh, the devil, and for the one united with Christ, the Lord. And a big part of navigating life as a follower of Jesus is being able to distinguish between those voices that are trying to influence your inner dialogue. And the whole enslavement part is prior to Jesus being in there by the Holy Spirit and having voice into that inner dialogue, there were only the other influences. And we were held captive to them. We were enslaved by them. So we were, we were dead and, and we were enslaved. And uh, really quickly, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The, the world refers to human society organized around people instead of around God. An anthropocentric thing, human, organized around human beings instead of a theocentric thing organized around God. That's the world. Whole system of values uh, that says that human beings are at the center. The flesh refers to personal desires of body and mind. It's not just sins of the flesh in in that kind of understanding. Appetites gone wrong. You know, food, sleep, sex. I mean, doing too much of any of that. It's it's much greater than that. The flesh refers to uh, wherever the self kind of raises its head against God or people. That's the flesh, our utter self-centeredness. And the devil, says the Bible. As unfashionable as it might be in our day, the scripture is clear. There is a person who is coordinating evil in the world and has associates. And not at all like God, not omnipotent, not present everywhere, but a created being that is quarterbacking evil. 
And those voices all have input into this inner dialogue. So before God, we were dead and we were enslaved and we were condemned. I promise there is some good news. But to understand the depth of the good news, you have to grasp the depth of the bad news. We were dead, we were enslaved, and we were condemned. Here it is. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And if you're like me, whenever you see the word wrath and you think of all these conversations about the wrath of God and all sorts of questions come to mind, and let me settle most of those for us by defining God's wrath as it is understood biblically. This from one theologian I respect. God's wrath is not like man's. It is not bad temper so that he might fly off the handle at any moment. It is neither spite nor malice nor animosity nor revenge. It is never arbitrary since it is the divine reaction to only one situation, namely evil. Therefore, it is entirely predictable. It is never subject to mood, whim, or caprice. Further, it is not the impersonal outworking of retribution in society. That's a lot. We're never going to remember all that. But if God's wrath is neither arbitrary reaction nor impersonal process, what is it? Here it is. By the way, the best single definition I feel like I've ever seen. God's wrath is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility toward evil. His settled refusal to compromise with it and his resolve instead to condemn it. That's what God's wrath is. If you've been concerned about this idea in Christian theology or the Bible, you don't need to be concerned. If you've had a concern, it's my strong bet it's been based on a misunderstanding of real Christian theology. And I'd be happy to talk more about that if anybody has that concern and would like to chat more. Understood rightly, each and every one of us should be deeply grateful to God for his wrath. But you've never heard that before. We should be deeply grateful to God for his wrath because God is perfect. He always reacts to evil in the same way, the same unchanging, predictable, uncompromising way. Just imagine a world where the true God did not react to evil in the same uncompromising, unchanging way every time. That would be a horror beyond horrors because all that is truly evil, God might not call evil. Understand that? This, this is just simply God saying, I will not compromise with evil. What's wrong is wrong. What's evil is evil. There's no way around that. And that's a good thing. So life before God, just so we can be clear, before God we're dead to any real life, enslaved to the fallen voices of the world, flesh, devil, and world, and and condemned to wrath. That's bad news. I saw it summarized best in a very simple diagram. A little stick figure guy in some waves. You've probably heard me say this before if you're a fifth regular little stick figure guy in the ocean, just the upper half of the stick figure guy, one arm going out like this, trying to grab himself by the hair to lift himself out of the ocean. 
that doesn't work because we've got no power, we've got no leverage to actually pull ourselves out of the ocean. And that's what the Bible says about our spiritual condition before God. Before God, we were helpless. But God. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with, with, with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Now in the original language, the word order looks like this. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. You know, all this stuff before God, we were dead, we were enslaved, we were condemned, but God did something. Actually, not religious idea, not spiritual philosophy, the cross standing on the timeline of history never to be changed. God did something. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. Amazing, before God, dead, enslaved, condemned, but God. You know, God made us alive when we were dead. God breathes life into dead people. Again, this is the constant theme of scripture. The, the whole redemptive arc since God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden and, and was unwilling to allow them to stay in that fallen state forever. That's why he kicked them out of the garden, by the way. That's why he put the flaming sword there, by the way, so they couldn't go back in and, and eat of the tree of life and stay that way forever. Right? God was unwilling to allow us to remain fallen because God wants to breathe life into dead people. Look at this from, from Ezekiel. The hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up to their feet, a vast army. Is there any place in you that's dead? Feeling like dry bones on the valley floor? God breathes life into dead people. Are you wondering 
how you can possibly navigate this life, all of its challenges. Are you feeling like they're sapping your life away at a rate you fear will leave you empty sooner rather than later? No religious cliches for you, just the simple message of the Bible. God breathes life into dead people. And God wants to breathe life into us. God wants to breathe life into us by grace. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For it is by grace you have been saved, made alive again. I'll listen to this from a New York Times opinion piece of December 23rd, just before this last Christmas. Thanks to Randy Wolteis, by the way, for forwarding it to me. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey describes a conference on comparative religions where experts from around the world debated which belief, if any, was unique to the Christian faith. C.S. Lewis happened to enter the room during the discussion when he was told the topic was Christianity's unique contribution among world religions, Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And Lewis was right. No other religion places grace at its theological center. It was a revolutionary idea. As Mr. Yancey puts it, grace, quote, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. We're naturally drawn to covenants and karma, to cause and effect, to earning what we receive but it is by grace we have been saved. By grace. By grace, we have been saved. That's right, saved. Just as Christians cannot shy away from the word wrath, Christians cannot shy away from the word saved. Don't get hung up on this. There have been many weird and inappropriate uses of the word saved in religion across history, but we're not concerned about all of the baggage a word might have or that it's accumulated over the years. We're concerned about what the Bible means by using it. Let's be clear, as much as we might like to domesticate this message of Jesus and keep it in a little spiritual snow globe on the dresser in our bedroom, we can't because it will not allow us. You know, at its root, the gospel is not a message of just of spiritual fulfillment or ethical ideas that ought to be followed or, or some general concept of divine love that prompts us to be more tolerant of other, other people. At its root, the gospel is a rescue story because we need to be rescued. You and I need to be rescued. It's what Jesus said. He said it. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And the lost doesn't refer to everybody else. It refers to me and it refers to you. This is us and we need to be saved. Jesus came to fix all that before God stuff. He came to remedy the great tragedy of human existence that people who were created by God and for God are trying to live without God. He came to fix all that. That's what it means to be saved when he fixes it in us. 
And what specifically does salvation entail? It's all right in the passage we read today. Salvation is this. God made us alive with Christ. God raised us up with Christ. And God seated us with him. These these three things are three big things that happened to Jesus. He was resurrected. He ascended from earth to heaven. And then he was seated at God's right hand. The resurrection, the ascension, and the session. That might be a new word for you, but that's when Jesus was seated at God's right hand. Theologically, that's what that's called. And every time we rehearse the Apostles' Creed, we confess these things. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. But the amazing thing about the passage we read today is Paul isn't talking about the stuff that happened to Jesus Paul is saying that when we're in Christ, when we confess that Jesus is Lord with our mouth and believe that God raised him from the dead in our hearts, we're united with Christ and therefore we participate in all of those things that happened to Jesus. We participate in the resurrection of Jesus. We participate in his ascension. We participate in being seated with him in God's throne room right now. We were dead, but now we're alive in Jesus, resurrection. We were enslaved, but have now ascended into a new kingdom of freedom with Jesus. Ascension. We were condemned, but now sit with Jesus uh, next to God's throne and and, in God's uh, great power and, and grace. Wow. I mean, that's what it means to be saved. Before God, but God, by grace, and through faith. That's what the scripture says. For it is by grace you are saved through faith. If you struggle with faith, ask yourself this. Why did God do all of this? Why? I mean, the answer to that is in our scripture of this morning as well. God acted on our behalf out of his sheer mercy Love, grace, and kindness. All four of those words come right out of the text. God is merciful. God is loving. God is gracious. And God is kind. Is that the God that you know? When you think about God, are these words the first that come to your mind? Merciful and loving and gracious and, and kind. Or are you working with your own image of God? Maybe one that's quite different from this picture of a, perfectly, a perfect heavenly parent guided by, by these qualities of mercy and love and grace and kindness. You know, we all, we all have faith hang-ups. There's no doubt about that. No, nobody, like, does this perfectly right, nor is that the, the goal, right? Otherwise, we're making faith a work that we have to perform correctly to earn God's favor. And it's not that. That's not faith. So I I don't don't know what your faith hang-ups are today. I don't know what's holding you back or keeping you down or preventing a flying leap of faith. Only you know that. But I do know that we judge any invitation to a step of faith by the object of faith. For being invited to trust, we quickly do the mental math. 
is that which we're being invited to trust trustworthy? Might I rely upon that? Lean my weight upon it? You know, we judge any invitation to faith by the object of faith. I know that. And I know this. Jesus is worthy of our trust. Really. Jesus is worthy of your trust. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To save not to condemn, to save people. Before God, but God, by grace, through faith. The before and after pictures are stunning. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, Would you please repeat the tapes in our minds and hearts of anything that was from you this morning. And you would, would you erase from us anything that was, was not of you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this message. Help us to turn towards you, to rely upon you. Pour out your spirit on us and guide us toward you, God. Remove barriers, remove obstacles. Make faith grow in us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.